it doesn't really make sense to hire an employee for a job description. It makes sense to hire them for a task that relates to how your company executes and how your company moves forward. And yet, starting only only starting five years ago when we really launched in earnest, were you able to atomize work down to the level that you didn't need a job description? The job description was effectively a, a placeholder for a world that I think we have today where you can be significantly more precise about how a person spends their time. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFC's Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins on every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1,000 store credit, $500 cash and more. Plus again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm slash on it if you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously, people don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously, disruptors.fm cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. Welcome to the disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Are you listening? I got a job for you. We're talking gig economy, but not low-level gigs. This is the big leagues. Today, we've got Rob Biederman on the program. He's the co-founder and CEO of Catalan, a company that connects large companies with talent and knowledge in real time. Think MBAs, strategic business consultants. If you need high-level people in your business, that's what Catalan's doing. So we'll get into the ins and outs of that business, of the gig economy, so to speak, and where it's headed in today's episode when we discuss how the gigification of everything is affecting corporations and will unfold what the government can and should do about employee rights and labor, the future of work as autonomy looms, why the government is so damn inefficient and how we can improve productivity, why Rob is incredibly skeptical on the time frame for self-driving cars, Rob's thoughts about Uber and other low-level gig workers, why the DMV would be a million times better if it was a business, and why Rob isn't all that worried about privacy. If you're interested in the future of work, especially if you want to have a job and not be outsourced, automated, or cut away by companies looking to go profitable. This one's an interesting one to listen to. Catalan's an interesting company, and you guys will enjoy it. Again, you can follow us at disruptors.fm. You can find me on Twitter at mattwardio. And if you like this, you want to subscribe, you can also subscribe on YouTube disruptors.fm slash YouTube. If you do, subscribe and hit the notification bell so that you never miss a thing. And now, without further ado, I give you Rob Biederman. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So Rob, platforms, gig economy, startups, you're kind of at the intersection of everything. Give me a quick 30 second overview of who you are and how you got here and then where you see us headed. Sure. So unlike most traditional VC-backed founders, I actually started my career in private equity investing, uh, which is which is not the normal path for somebody who's, who you know starts a tech company versus engineering or sales or something like that. What was great about that as a foundational background, background for my career was it really helped me understand how big companies execute and the ways in which they could execute significantly better. And so it was actually a fairly linear process from working with really big companies that, that my former firms owned uh, to starting a company that really helps them go from strategy to execution a lot faster. 
uh, with combination of a software product and a marketplace product. Strategy to execution. What does that mean in a nutshell? Is that McKinsey? What is that? We'd say that it's it's similar to McKinsey, but it, it might even be a little more comprehensive and certainly more software driven. So if you think about what's the challenge facing big companies today, by and large, is they have such market advantages. So if you're a really big company, a cereal company, a beer company, an oil and gas company, you've done the same thing for 75 years, 100 years, 125 years. And customers, regardless of what space you're in, are looking for something new from you. They don't want to eat cereal. They don't want to drink light beer. They want a really great mobile app from their bank. And yet you've developed your operating model completely to serve what your customers used to want. And your operating model means your cadences internally, your talent selection model, how you actually think about resourcing projects all the way down from strategy to execution. What the Catalan platform does is help you understand what are the most important initiatives that you need to accomplish, the the pivotal mission-critical initiatives that will take you from wherever you are today to where you want to get where you want to go, and help you both track and monitor health of those initiatives, and then also resource them in real time by bringing to bear a talent mix that can be your own internal employees, the people in our 80,000-person expert marketplace, consulting firms, uh, and a variety of other folks that can effectively help you deploy the strategy all the way down through the all the way down through the funnel. With the goal primarily of helping the big guys not get killed by innovation. More or less, yeah. We work uh, substantially with the Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 customer base, but then we also work with some of the most exciting disruptive companies too. What do you see as the big difference between the two? I think when it, when it really comes down to is speed. So the people at big companies, I think, are just as smart as people at new, more innovative, disruptive companies. They obviously have way more resources in most cases. The difference is, and I can, I can use an example of this, is they're much more willing to move fast and break things as the expression goes. So at, you know, at Uber, for example, uh, sort of nobody asked anybody's permission to work on Uber Eats, right? They had a existing rideshare business. Somebody at the company decided that it could be really interesting to use the drivers to also deliver food and they just went after it, right? And they have a very, they and many other disruptive companies, we work and others have a very, um, sort of open uh, approach to innovation where you don't need to run things through 400 different committees and staged approval processes. You can just sort of get an idea and market and see how it goes. What we hear from our more established customers is it takes them two and a half to three years to get a product in the market. It's a, it's a huge difference. I'm glad you brought up Uber and WeWork. So speaking of Uber, the, the gig economy, do you guys consider yourself a gig economy company? I think we're certainly related to what's going on in the gig economy. And so just to, to set the scene for folks about our marketplace, we have about 80,000 independent contractors that work through our platform. They are uh, pretty elite business experts in skill sets like supply chain or predictive analytics or AI, uh, particularly more on the commercialized side of AI. There are people who have opted out of the traditional workforce and the traditional work economy because they think the best way to monetize their skills is to work through a platform like ours. They get to work for some of the most interesting companies in the world, the biggest companies on the most interesting problems. Uh, but they'd rather do that through us than through a consulting firm or through a traditional employment model. Basically, it's top-end gig economy type deal. How does that work with healthcare? How does that work with benefits? I know that's one of the big things today is you can drive for Uber, but it kind of sucks for a lot of the other sides. Yeah. So what happens actually in almost every one of our experts' cases is they're not really functioning exactly as an independent contractor. What they actually do is form their own boutique consulting firm for a lot of reasons, for taxes, for healthcare, for all those uh, basic reasons. And they effectively become their own small business owner. And so they both win projects on our platform, but then also turn around and make their own hires and make their own projects on the platform. So they might uh, win an entire body of work that, say, costs $200,000. And they realize that there's two individual work streams that they're not particularly well suited to take on. They would then turn around and hire other folks for those twenty dollars or $30,000 work streams. And so when you look at the life of somebody on our platform, they have uh, aspects that you characterized as similar to the gig economy. But really what they've done is used our platform to kind of found their own small business. What does that do for the future of the economy as you have these micro small businesses clashing with these mega corporations? You're kind of seeing a whittling out of the the middle ground. Well, I think it's it's an interesting dynamic vis-a-vis sort of procurement of professional services. So if you look at the model today or before Catalan existed, you'd see that big companies don't really have a lot of options when they need to bring in external resources. 
right? They, they, they look at the world and there's basically big consulting firms and small consulting firms, which in some cases are really, really good fits. But in a lot of cases, you have a project that's nowhere near the scale of what's required for a traditional consulting firm. And in those cases, on the Cavalier platform, you can either find somebody internally to do the work, and we can get into that in a second, or you can find somebody from our marketplace. And so what we're really doing, when you say that we're a gig economy company, I actually agree with that, but not in the traditional sense of operating a massive independent workforce. But instead, we're taking the principles of the gig economy, which effectively is a project-based or, or sprint approach to work, and even actually opening that up to a company's own internal full-time W-2 employees. So rather than working through a job description, they're actually working through uh, a project orientation. How do you think about that dichotomy that's happening, especially in tech? Google's something like 50% contractors, 50% employees. There is that difference between being an employee and not, especially in terms of the perks. And it might not be as applicable to you guys, but it is the trend it feels like the industry is going in. For sure. I think that trend's undeniable. I mean, I think we operate in a pretty um, compelling niche where folks are not in our platform because companies want to avoid giving them benefits. Folks are on our platform because they actually want to work for multiple companies over the course of the year. They don't want to be tied to a single geographic location or they don't want to be tied to a single um, sort of like mission orientation. They instead want to hop from project to project because they truly believe that they have a differentiated skill set and they'll probably make more money with a lot more flexibility if they can get out of the full-time job paradigm. I think there are a lot of questions that, that are going to be asked and answered over the next couple of years about the sustainability of kind of what I call the core, maybe like low hourly rate gig economy. But that isn't really the part of the, the labor stack where we participate, if that makes sense. No, yeah, you guys, are, you guys are the 1% marketplace. But in terms of the lower side, because that's where most of the things happened, how do you see that shaking out? I think it'll be an interesting space. I think uh, so the short answer is I don't know. I don't, I don't think about that with most of my time. I think what will be interesting is to see how much of the so-called solution comes from the private sector versus the public sector. If you think about the way that we've historically solved a lot of um, market failure problems in the country, usually there's just been sort of like regulation and laws. This to me strikes uh, as a pretty good place where you could build an unbelievable company that, that offers services that replicate that. And at the end of the day, cash is kind of a shared commodity. Obviously, the one challenge with that is that we have a um, U.S. tax code that massively favors employee-provided health care from a tax perspective. And so uh, a gig economy contractor would be using after-tax dollars to buy health care from this theoretical private company. And that in 2019 doesn't really make sense to me. And not only that, they're also buying the worst form of insurance. They, they, well, that's what we have to do now. I'm an entrepreneur and you get the bottom of the barrel. No one wants to take you. You got to drive super far and you're dealing with a shit doctor's kind of deal. Do we need to, to, if we need to, if we're going to make the gig economy function in the future, do you need a universal healthcare system to make it something that seems doable? I think that that falls outside of my political capability to answer. I mean, I think if, if you use it as your guiding principle, like sustainability, uh, I would say it's, it's, you know, the system probably needs some modifications, like the, the sort of like government legal framework around benefits. But I don't necessarily know specifically how you draw that up. Okay, just that it needs to change, which it is super unsustainable at this point. So if you look at Washington, I, I would probably take the under on this being the, the highest priority, even in as regards the healthcare system, right? Like I think very few of the debates around the healthcare system are actually on this topic as opposed to kind of all the other possibilities in the healthcare system. Yeah, there's a healthcare broken in more ways than we can even figure out. Exactly. What does the future of work look like? Is it employee, employer? Is it gig? Is it something else entirely? And as automation starts to come in, how does that affect that game? Yes, I'd say that automation probably falls a little bit outside of our scope again. To me, the future of work is less around the classification of an employee as a W-2 or a 1099. And it's much more around a new philosophical approach to how enterprises get things done. As I said earlier, how they, how they kind of go from strategy to execution and how they try to do that faster. The current system is really keystoned by the idea that a job is a 40 or 50 hour a week commitment to a physical desk, physical location, uh, a single mission, a title, largely fixed compensation. And I think in many respects, that system has really outlived its usefulness. Uh, 
it is obviously immensely artificial to believe that most jobs are exactly 40 hour a week jobs, right? That's, it's so unlikely to believe that there's like, you know, 200 million jobs in the US, 160 million, and all of them are exactly 40 hour a week jobs. The reality is there's ones that are 30 hour a week jobs and there's ones that are 100 hour a week jobs. And people in the 30 version are um, typically disengaged and in some respects overpaid. And people in the 100 hour version are also disengaged and obviously way underpaid. And so I think we we have an opportunity with new technologies like ours that can do such rich on-demand matching to really change the definition of work away from work equals job instead to work equals the sort of job to be done. Like if you think about core disruption, it doesn't really make sense to hire an employee for a job description. It makes sense to hire them for a task that relates to how your company executes and how your company moves forward. And yet... Starting only only starting five years ago when we really launched in earnest, were you able to atomize work down to the level that you didn't need a job description? The job description was effectively a, a placeholder for a world that I think we have today where you can be significantly more precise about how a person spends their time. Well, let's play devil's advocate. When you can be more precise, it means inevitably it's probably more left-brained, it's probably more automatable, and it's probably more going to be replaced in the future. Is that right? Well, I think a lot of the work that happens on our platform is less. Your, pl- your, pl- your platform's different, but in, even, even then. There's not necessarily a 1%, 99% split. I think a lot of the reasons why people hire people on our platform are not for hard skills, though many are. They're more to solve uh, problems that the organization's never had to solve before. They require things like creativity and empathy, whether it's first person or sort of imagined empathy around the customer, or their very complex system solution problems that don't necessarily lend themselves well to automation, which I think tends to be more for simple, repeatable tasks. Uh, obviously, I would imagine some fraction of the like data analytics or sort of advanced analytics that happens on our platform probably will move down the, uh, the uh, automation curve over time. But things like, you know, how, how in the world do we market? If you're Anheuser-Busch, how do you market, you know, this new wine spritzer? That's something that I think won't be automated for a long time. And if you've ever dealt with kind of like um, mass-produced, low-quality advertising, you realize that sometimes using formulas for things like creativity and empathy, particularly customer empathy, actually lead to a really bad result. It's hard for me to believe in the short term, at least until AI is way, way better than it is today. A lot of the more nuanced things that companies have to get done, even around judgment, uh, will really see too much disruption, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you guys have ra- raised a chunk of change lately. What are what are you building towards, and how do you feel about the overall startup ecosystem? Sure. So you know we've raised at this point almost 100 million dollars across six rounds of financing. Most of that has gone into two investment areas. The first is building a world class platform to be able to really help companies understand the work they need to get done and take it all the way down through the execution funnel. And then the second is to educate the market through sales and marketing. Right? There's um, there's quite a bit that the market doesn't necessarily understand or hasn't thought about about how they should be operating. And most of that is actually fairly counterintuitive or at least non-intuitive. And so we've had to, in a pretty kind of hand-to-hand, offline way, help individual stakeholders at large companies understand what sort of our software system can do for them and take them through that sort of execution funnel. You know, on the, on the startup ecosystem today, I'd say the biggest problem we have is there aren't enough new companies being started. I think there's still quite a few roadblocks for the average uh, the average person like, who maybe has a good idea. Sorry, go ahead. Like what? What are the roadblocks? Uh, well, I, I can take you through some of the ones we faced uh, as people with an idea that you know I think is pretty good, but it it, it was a uh, it was a hard first year. Uh, if you're not technical, it's very hard to start a company where engineering is a core part of it because you have to convince technical people to follow you. And the challenge is you end up in a bit of a chicken or the egg problem where most high-quality VCs won't invest unless you have a technical team, but most technical people won't uh, spend time with a company until it has sort of technical validation. Now, you can obviously like charisma your way out of that. We weren't quite that good, so we just had to raise venture capital financing in order to convince tech people to, uh, to work with us. You know, I think uh, for a lot of people, sort of the perceived or the real financial risk of leaving you know, traditional employment and starting a company can be intimidating. Uh, I think the angel markets in most areas that are not Silicon Valley are still fairly underdeveloped. We're obviously lucky to be in Boston that has a pretty strong angel community. But there's probably only a few thousand or maybe dozens of thousands of really credible angels in the US who can write large checks. 
And the challenge with early stage company formation is you only have so much time. You're probably doing something else. You probably don't have a very large team. And so you have to think about how do I balance my time between working on the business and to the extent that you need capital, raising, raising capital. And those are kind of zero sum. And the challenge is an, an angel who's going to invest $5,000 or $20,000 takes probably about the same amount of time to sell as a wealthier angel who's going to invest $100,000 or $250,000. But we don't have enough of the people who can write the $250,000 check. So as the average founder, you end up spending a lot of time in very long meetings with people who are thinking about five dollars or $25,000 checks. I mean, we, we ended up with, I think, about 20, 25 participants in our, in our angel round. Some with checks as small as $4,000. We luckily ended up with Mark Cuban leading it with a check of almost a half million dollars. But that was more the result of a lucky cold email that I sent him than kind of any deliberate calculated process. Um, and so I think if he, if he and our other lead angel had you know, represented $650,000 out of $750,000, we would have spent a lot of time scratching ass to pull in, I guess, 18 investors for the remaining $100,000. that makes sense. What made your cold email stand out to Cuban? You know, I think what it what it did was it, it summarized the problem really well, and it got to the point pretty quickly. The background was that we'd actually applied to go on Shark Tank. We'd been accepted, and then the taping schedule for the Shark Tank interfered with our our second year of classes in business school, and so we had to unfortunately decline the chance to go on Shark Tank. I, you know, I attached a PowerPoint deck to it, which I think was probably slightly more coherent than most of the inbound pitches he gets. The other reality is I don't think he gets that many inbound pitches. It's not like he's getting hundreds per day, right? And so I think from somebody as committed as he to the startup ecosystem and really funding innovation, if he's getting, I don't know, I'd imagine between 5 and 50 inbounds a day, he's a pretty hands-on, sophisticated guy. And he can you know pretty quickly come to understand whether an idea has some merit and it's worth kind of a, an email exchange or a phone call. How do you think about that dichotomy between what I would argue is the self-funded business, which a lot I think a lot of the stuff that goes on Shark Tank doesn't really have a business getting funding. It's not a venture type, let's go for the moon and make big returns type business model. And then what you guys are doing, you're building a marketplace, you're building something that's VC bread and butter. How do you think about those two different divergent businesses? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the statistics around sort of job growth in the US say that we're actually like for every Uber, which obviously now employs uh, a lot of employees, but then also a tremendous number of drivers where they earn some amount of money. For every one of those, there are, you know, literally tens of thousands of sole proprietorships that have kind of between one and five employees. And I think the statistics say that a lot of job creation actually comes from those one fewer than five employee uh, companies and the rate of those being formed is lower than it's ever been. There are many arguments that people have thrown out for that. I think as a as a sort of system, we could do a lot better at fostering innovation. One interesting argument I heard about certain ecosystems other than Silicon Valley is that the best way to create a well-developed angel market, which I think I would argue is the best way to create more businesses on the path to VC scale, is to have uh, companies stay independent longer. So you have a lot more broader wealth creation. So when you have a company like Facebook or you know Uber or Airbnb, you've created in some cases they're like thousands of millionaires, and those are people who are all having been through the experience are more likely to become angel investors. When you have a company sell at like 250 person scale. You don't come out of there with too many new, like very wealthy people. And so the, the like sort of ecosystem doesn't really grow numerically. You only have maybe like five or 10 people with life changing wealth. Whereas if you have like an Amazon or a Facebook, you end up with like thousands of employees with life changing wealth. And that's pretty key to creating a bigger ecosystem. Yeah, I would definitely agree. The, the, the money becoming the flywheel that kind of scratches itself is a, is a big deal. You basically got New York, you've got San Francisco, you've got Seattle, you've got Boston. LA and that that's that's kind of about it uh, Austin but the one other point I throw out about like the micro business creation the non VC back businesses is I haven't noticed in the market any financial player whether traditional or disruptive that really is excited about lending startup capital to the one to five person business market so there's some businesses that you can bootstrap and get off the ground but even things as simple as a you know a new small restaurant or QSR or something like that typically can't get by with zero startup capital or credit card loans or something. And there's definitely a um, there's definitely a market opportunity for somebody to start a sort of like micro credit business that does loans of say like a couple thousand up to $50,000 that has a sufficient analytical data underpinning to 
be able to charge lower interest rates. Like the real the real reason why those why, why banks don't like getting into that business is they have to charge interest rates that are so high that not only makes them seem bad like bad guys, but nobody wants to take on the the interest rates. A lot of my argument would be that they're using completely outdated methods of underwriting. And so when you don't have particularly great data on new business success, it's really hard to tell the ones that are going to succeed and the ones that are going to fail. And so you just have to charge a blanket, you know, 20% interest rate because you don't know any better. But I would argue like if you look at a lot of the more innovative personal lending companies, those have somehow not really moved over to the small business lending market. Yeah, you definitely see more and more of these popping up. And I think that is a very good point is that access to capital because banks have pretty much failed small businesses. Totally. What do you think about education? I know you guys kind of have a creative model where people are paying a shit ton for an MBA. At least now they can make some money on the side. But what do you think about the overall education space? Yeah, I mean, I think the one, one thing we've seen on our platform, and, and we've definitely moved far beyond MBAs. I'd say the average project is not at all won by somebody with an MBA right now. We're moving from a world where education functions as kind of a credential and a reputation stamp, which I would argue is a very blunt instrument and not at all very uh, thoughtful in terms of signaling quality to a world where your skills and your expertise are much more firsthand verifiable. So in the past, you know, people got hired because they went to Columbia and they worked at McKinsey and people knew that both of those places had high bars. And so they sort of assumed if you made it through those two screens that you're worth interviewing because you also have a high bar. You put them through six, you know, half hour, sort of relatively, you know, intellectually lightweight uh, culture, personality interviews uh, characterized by all kinds of bias. The new world, I think, is going to be much more, and let's just call that like the Zagat world, where a couple, you know, mucky mucks get to decide who's good and it's all pretty arbitrary and non data driven. The world that I think we're seeing on our platform is one where you could have not gone to college, you could have learned a given skill set on General Assembly or, you know, the online company where you can take classes. And what matters for winning these projects, at least on our platform, is demonstrated aptitude in a given space. So the platform puts virtually no weight on what degrees you have or where they're from or your prior employment. It puts weight on, have you demonstrated to others in the past that you're capable of succeeding in this, in this, on this specific environment? Sorry, on this specific project in the commercial environment. And that's a completely different approach to how talent is selected and evaluated. I would order, I would argue it's one that's much more meritocratic. If you roll that all the way back into what education needs to produce. It's people who are actually competent with demonstrated skills as opposed to degree holders. And if you look at sort of how most of the post-secondary education system is structured today, it's almost exclusively around sort of securing a degree as the stamp of quality uh, without necessarily a lot of test for sort of like practical attainment, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And a lot of it's rote memorization. How do you match together candidates' jobs? So the system is very effective at looking at the words in the project post, the buyer's industry, their functional area, their, their level of seniority, and understanding uh, in virtually real time who on our platform is going to be the best fit for a project. And that can span your own W2 employee base or uh, the folks on our network. And what it really comes down to is uh, almost like a money ball style analysis of what projects that have been done on the platform before look most like this one. Who succeeded on those projects? What were like their key attributes? And then go out and find the person who looks most like the, the ideal kind of key attribute profile that succeeded in the past. And if you use that approach to matching talent, one, it's just a lot more efficient because it's done by a system instead of people. Uh, but two, it takes out a lot of the sort of like, I would argue, very unhealthy biases of all sorts that have existed in the past. And our system, I think, shows that we, we don't see any benefit from having gone to Harvard College if you don't know how to do something. Like the Harvard College degree is in no way replaceable. That, that cannot possibly replace actually knowing how to do something. And we see people with very impressive resumes lose projects on our site all the time to people who have actually demonstrated aptitude uh, in live situations in the past. Is it, is it AI-based? How do you get rid of the white guy bias? So, for instance, Amazon tried their best to come up with a great AI system to be more diverse in hiring. And they found, well, shit, we're hiring all the same people that we already have, tons of white guys. How do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, the system looks only at sort of like demonstrated success on the platform or in similarly replicable environments in the past. And I think what the system's really good at is ignoring a lot of the, I guess, call like signifiers that are correlated with, you know, what you just laid out. And so, for instance, like, you know, in the way that you, every, anybody can submit a self-described work pass of like what specifically they actually worked on and the 
depth and breadth of that is far more important uh, to how the system works than like having gone to Harvard Business School, for example. And so a lot of the um, sort of like things that are maybe correlated with an undiverse work environment are fairly de-emphasized on the platform and other like much more, much more predictive words are relatively more emphasized. I got you. What is the future of the corporation and how does it play into the power dynamic with government as businesses are getting bigger and bigger? Maybe I'll try to take on the first one and then think of something interesting to say on the second, which is obviously a really big question. Uh, you know, on, on the on the first one, I think corporations have been stuck for a while with a pretty mediocre um, resource mapping system. So most companies have no idea who works for them, what they're good at, what are the most important strategic initiatives they need to take down that year, and how they correlate kind of their resource pool with the things they need to do. No one system has done a very good job of that. The, the ERP world has become much more about kind of like part tracking and um, data output than actual like intelligent optimization. The HRIS industry, the HCM industry, I think has really like failed a lot of people in, in here's the promise level of what we think we can do. But in reality, you end up with a system for storing emerging, emergency contact information and basically payrolling. And then the kind of like program planning and strategy segment, which is like largely helps project management offices and strategy consultants has almost enforced on itself a really artificially low ceiling. And so you have this massive pain point of companies that have no idea how to get things done in a data-driven and transparent and visible way. And all of the existing software vendors that are supposed to be helping them are massively underperforming expectations or they're more focused on doing something else. I would argue that going forward, companies are going to be significantly more thoughtful about how they attack opportunity, whether on the high side, so uh, the good side, it's like we have this market opportunity, how do we quickly move towards it? Or we have this threat from somebody coming after our profit pool or after our customers. And right now, the process by which companies resource relative to the most important things is, I would say, like at best serendipitous and at worst, completely directionless. I would argue in five years, companies are going to be significantly more optimized and they're going to get like their most important people, you know, at the plate and the most important at bats. Whereas today, it feels a little bit like the people at the plate are going to be the ones that happen to be walking by when the problem came up. Let me put a pause on that second part of the question and say everything you just described, I would say if corporations are bad, governments are like 100 times worse. How do we handle that? The fact that the government is 40% of the GDP, has no idea what they're doing or who's doing what. Yeah. Well, so this may be a little arch, but I would argue that governments today are just as much suited to uh, serve their employees as they are to serve their constituents, or maybe even more so. So if you look at, if you think about like pure customer centricity, and you take something like the DMV or the RMV in Massachusetts... Uh, people like to work from nine to five. Like the people who work at the DMV would love to be there from nine to five. Unfortunately, we all work from nine to five as well. And so the only way for us to go to the DMV uh, is to miss our job to go there just to suit the convenience of the employees at the DMV. If the DMV were a private business, it would have said like, well, this doesn't work. We need to offer this service outside of like core business hours so people can actually use it without missing work. And then you might say, well, it's really hard to employ people at nights and on the weekends where you at the DMV. It's like, well... 99% of what happens in the DMV could be totally automated. The only real reason I would argue that DMV still exists is to make sure that there's absolutely no job loss at departments of motor vehicles. Because obviously, as you begin to automate things, the sort of demand for the human workers at the DMV goes down. And so I think if all governments, particularly on like the services side, like this is not a military argument, it's not a foreign policy argument, but like, you know, we all pay taxes and in exchange, we get things like, you know, well maintained roads and a system of, you know, motor vehicle licensure that makes it safer to drive, um, we would never put up with anything like we put up with from the government, from a private company, because we effectively have no, like at the end of the day, whether you love or hate the DMV, you need to have a license, uh, you need to be licensed as a driver and have a you know registered vehicle. And I think coming going forward, citizens will be significantly more demanding when they compare like how good the Amazon Prime experience is and how like awful you know, 90% of government services are. Yeah, it's comparable to the the B2B, B2C paradigm where users are going home and they've got something that's awesome and then they're going into work and using like XP or Windows 2000. And you saw the user-led revolt in what happened with iPhones. Like 10 years ago, uh, when I was at a big company, you could not use an iPhone at that company. You had to use a BlackBerry. And now today, people have... Private companies filled in the gap like good that allows you to have secure work email on your personal iPhone. And I think you're going to see user-led revolts in a lot of other spaces. 
How do you do that from a government perspective where it is a pure monopoly and a monopoly where the other side has the guns? Um, you know, I'd argue that we need to start electing leaders with probably more sort of user empathy backgrounds. Like I'm sure there are, I would bet there are zero product managers in any, you know, material level of government uh, at all. And I think the challenge is, and I think we've sort of seen this in a couple instances, and we happen to be really lucky in Boston and in Massachusetts actually have incredibly tech-centric, thoughtful government. So a lot of my anti-RMV, anti-everything story is actually not really a Massachusetts story, but I bet across 50 states, it's much more true than not. The challenge is you can hire the best product managers in the world to work at the DMV, but if the governor or the head of the Department of Motor Vehicles is not somebody with a customer centricity user user experience mindset, then they're probably going to veto a lot of the projects that the you know thoughtful product managers at the bottom of the funnel would propose. So I think we'll really only prosper when we have sort of empowered budget bearing leaders in government who you know are focused on you know delivering better products to customers. Which well, is let's play the orientation today. Let's play devil's advocate. You probably have those guys at AT&T and Verizon, etc. But they're the most powerful monopolies in the world. And I'm pretty sure you probably hate their customer service as much as I do. And it's because they're a monopoly. Uh, so um, They don't have to try. So that without directly disparaging any of those companies, I'd say for most big companies that may have monopolistic characteristics, I would not argue that customer centricity is very high on their radar screen at all. I think it's more um, that you want to pull in folks that have come from relatively small-scale, scrappy environments where... Um, customer centricity was not a nice to have or a line in the annual report, but it was actually like a table stakes uh, existential driver of the business. Like companies like us can't succeed if our users don't like us. Obviously, Comcast and Verizon basically can. Uh, and so there's a certain um, customer centric imperative you get in the small money losing company context that you can't really ever get at a large company at scale because it's just not really that important. Then how do you get it in government? I guess this is obviously a very tech-centric, startup-centric view of the world, but people with backgrounds like our product managers, I think, would be really good government employees if you could ever convince them that that's what they, want, what they wanted to do. But I'm kind, of, I'm kind of getting to the incentive point of if there is, if there is no, there's no push, there's nothing to push them. Then it can be see how it can be easy to see how it's not too bad to be fat and lazy. As a government employee, I'll say as making that as hypocritical as far out there as possible, but th there's no reason to innovate because there's no competition. Well, I think that's where the demands have to come from the users, the voters, right? Like I think um, this probably works really well in small town contexts where, you know, whether you vote for your town supervisor, like I bet certain things like the quality of the parking ticket system in a small town, you know, town supervisor election really matter. Clearly for national offices, I don't think that's on too many people's minds, but that's where kind of the electorate has to, this change can only sort of be brought about by the users, the voters, but if, if people make clear that that's really important to them, then over time, you'd imagine candidates who are responsive to that line of inquiry are probably going to have more success. In theory, a platform like yours is really an intelligence platform trying to coordinate groups of people together to something bigger. What does that look like if you were to expand that out in terms of, I don't know if you're familiar with DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, or possibly changing the way government or society is structured so that it's on a merits and task basis versus being on a employment basis? Yes, yeah, so we maybe define the scope of this to companies. I think we, we have aspects and principles that are largely borrowed from sort of I wouldn't necessarily decentralize, but organizations that are far flatter and uh, more transparent and probably more visible or increased visibility across them. I think one of the biggest problems that big companies have today is that they, in some cases, probably have like 10 or 11 layers, maybe more, from the CEO to the average line worker. In that world, it's almost impossible to be agile uh, because so many things in order to formulate and execute on strategy, you have to go down through 15 different handoffs up and down up and down the chain. And so as your business context changes, that's how you end up with a two and a half to three years cycle. What our platform does is I think bring in a lot of the merits of decentralization and autonomy without any of the lack of stability. So we almost think about it as a two by two where the two attributes are slow, fast and unstable, stable. 
if you think about uh, a company that's executing really poorly today and, and losing market share and, and all of their you know, historical products are not doing well, that would be in the lower left, which is slow and unstable. The upper right would be something like Amazon, potentially, that's both reasonably stable and also very fast. Most of the customers we work with are either in the upper left, where they're slow and stable, or they are in the lower right, where they're fast and unstable. And we were just trying to move everybody into that upper right box of balancing speed and stability. What we found, our research and our customers' research has found, is one of the biggest drivers of speed and stability is visibility. Because so much of lack of stability comes from coordination failures because lots of people are either working on the same problem or they are working on different problems that actually have uh, non-additive solutions. And um, just solving that, solving all of kind of either the wasted or counterproductive effort for big companies, I think is like one of the reasons why we're most excited about this. I would agree. Do you think someone could essentially clone you guys and make a government version? I think that would be awesome. I think it would require a tremendous amount of priority shifting among both voters and kind of government employees. Like, I think one of the reasons why our business works is that one of the core assumptions here is that all companies want to do better all the time and execute more rapidly and offer a better employee experience and, you know, gain market share and add profits. Rightly or wrongly, and I don't know the answer to that because I think that's more of a values question, I don't know that governments have quite as much a single unifying variable that they're all trying to shoot for, right? Like, you know, companies usually have one coherent mission statement uh, that the board and management team are aligned around that they're all consciously optimizing for. I think that if you ask 320 million Americans what the mission of the U.S. government is, you get, you know, 60 or 70 different frameworks of answer, you know. Yes, and they would go very far in different directions. It's a, that's, that's one of the challenges today. What technology or trend are you most excited about outside of your own work and why? My personal take is that advanced analytics and big data and AI is much more a force of, for good than bad. If you look at healthcare, if you look at sort of consumer offerings, if you look at financial services, if you look at even you know traffic, there are so many opportunities to be had from coming up with faster and more accurate solutions to problems than the downsides, which are not zero. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited to live in a world where traffic lights are not just exactly the same every day, but they actually change dynamically based on traffic patterns. And I'm more excited to live in a world where rather than the same degree of human judgment, my doctor is actually inputting all of my symptoms into a computer that says like, you know, model would say that all these symptoms is 99% likely to be this and 93% likely to be this. Or in fact, even sort of one one layer up in the healthcare funnel, just a much degree, much greater degree of large scale sort of like population health is being studied in a more rigorous way, whereas today... We haven't really moved materially, you know, in the last you know couple of decades, and how kind of like um, healthcare and pharmaceuticals choices are really made. If that makes sense. Yeah, we fit pause. Is privacy dead? I think privacy is going to be different. I think you know the the large scale tech companies have definitely put us in an interesting box right now. So you know, I've talked with a lot of founders about the, you know who's to blame for you know, what you just laid out. Is it is it the big large scale tech companies that offer a product that's you know, someone characterized as addictive, or is it us who choose to, you know, participate in something that is superficially free, but has non, you know, non-economic costs? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I know that sort of, I'm, I'm probably less concerned about privacy than the average bear for, for a variety of reasons. I actually sort of don't mind the ad targeting on Facebook and Instagram, because I find that it tends to deliver me products and services that I'm like compelled by. And in the old world, I know I watched a lot of television commercials for car insurance when I didn't have a car, like if that makes sense. And so if you can sort of take as a table stakes assumption, as a human being, you're going to be exposed to some amount of media that you don't really sign up for in order to uh, uh, consume media that you want, like basically the TV commercial issue. I personally would be much happier in a world where my TV commercials were suited to my interests and things I might actually find value in than like auto insurance when I don't have a car. Even if your TV was watching you and then giving all of that away to someone else that you had no idea about, I feel like it, it gets slippery. Well, and that's, that's the interesting question that, that I don't know the answer to, which is, you know, in a world where you assume that all corporations were inherently ethical, I probably wouldn't have a problem with that if in a world where they're either sort of like unconcerned with ethics or worse than that, that probably is negative. And I'm, I haven't yet sort of figured out how you sort of police that, if that makes sense. Especially with cybersecurity, where it's kind of easy to grab all of your information. It's like every week we have another massive hack. 
Yeah, for sure. Even in a world where all corporations are ethical, a lot of hackers are not. Yeah, that's uh, sometimes that's the way the cookie crumbles. So how does it feel to be now, you did the private equity side of things and now you're on the startup perspective. How does it feel in the other side of the shoes? And do you feel any extra pressure? For sure. I mean, when you're a, when you're a private equity investor or venture capitalist, it's a job, right? You, you No matter how excited you are about it, and you obviously, I think most people try to do a really good job. You walk out of the office every day and uh, you turn off because your job is concluded for the day. The reality of starting a company or even really being an employee at an early stage company is that it, it becomes much more than a job. Like I don't think any of the 225 people who work here come in every morning because they want to get the paycheck the following Friday. I think they come in because they are almost unhealthily obsessed with making our vision of the world real and a success. And there are very clear upsides and very clear downsides to that. You know, the most obvious downside is that you never really have a moment off. So even when you're on vacation or you're you know, doing something fun on the weekend, you're still thinking about what's going on here. The upside is I haven't in six and a half years had the Sunday scaries once about coming in here. I've never thought, oh, I can't believe I have to go into the office tomorrow to do my job. I've thought, gosh, am I lucky to go in there and try to solve problems with a, with a group of really smart people. And I would actually argue that there's something pretty special about working at a company that hasn't yet figured out all everything yet. So we've had some folks leave here and go to you know, more established companies that sometimes it's Facebook and sometimes it's companies that are a lot later stage. And the one thing that they universally say that they really missed was the quest towards like figuring things out. I mean, it's not for everybody. There's some people who want to have a job where they go in, they're told what to do. It's a success. The fan of the, the emotional fan of outcomes is a lot tighter. But for a certain type of learner and a certain type of personality, uh, I don't think there's anything better than having the thing that, recall, you spent the majority of your life on be something with which you're truly intellectually engaged. Absolutely. You're building a marketplace company. What do you think about the marketplace monopolies we've had and the talks about regulating tech, breaking them up, etc.? So I don't, I don't know as much about the regulating tech concept. I think marketplaces do lend themselves to pretty strong advantages of scale. Uh, there, there are some marketplaces that function as natural monopolies. I think you know this, the one we operate in is pretty competitive. I would have a hard time believing that Catalan truly became a monopoly. I think you know it's our hope to have very high market share and, and do a really good job for every one of our customers. There's so many different parts of this ecosystem that come up every day. So there's a marketplace for oil field engineers. We're partnered with them, but we're never going to offer that firsthand. And so I think a lot of the question about monopolies is kind of how you define markets. In some cases, like Google AdWords, you have a market that I would actually argue is the same market as radio ads and highway billboards, which is just kind of like the market for human attention, uh, which is obviously bigger than just online search. In the same way, I think you can think about the Catalan market as including all full-time employees because every company, when they have a piece of work to do, they can either put it through the platform for one of their existing employees or they can kind of create new consumption by hiring somebody from our platform. And you know, I think we'll only get a chance to do that if we are you know, executing tremendously well. Which of the tech giants scares you the most and why? Uh, as a citizen or as a business person for this company? As, as a citizen. Um, you know, I, I think... I don't, I don't think about these thoughts too much because I'm pretty consumed with what we're doing here. But I think uh, somebody having the same degree of influence in what people consume as Facebook is, is probably the most troubling. I personally am a pretty big Amazon fan because I think even if they charge maybe slightly more, uh, they're a huge force over the long term for sort of consumer choice and helping subscale products get to market, which, you know, who can benefit from the Amazon fulfillment and scale. But yeah, I think I've seen, I guess, a lot of examples of people being influenced by the content they've seen on Facebook. Okay. I would say the Amazon side, what would happen if you guys decided to have your own agency and put all of your own contractors as kind of the top notches, so to speak, and always match them. You can kind of get into that slippery dynamic that Amazon does a lot with Amazon Basics. It's more and more what you buy. Yeah. Look, I think with any marketplace, there, there are trade-offs. We have you know, we are a um, probably an ethical company to a fault. We've probably passed on some profit-making opportunities that I would say we're not even close to the line, just, just to sort of send a message internally that... Um, you know, we didn't want to be anywhere near the line. Every company has to select where they pencil out on the sort of ethics spectrum. I'd say in a zero-sum game of business success and undertaking questionable, shady business practices, we've always passed uh, 
pretty resoundingly. Other people haven't made those choices. Their businesses might be worth more and more successful, but I would argue that like in the extreme long term, sort of going back to the sustainability idea that if you sort of like always optimize for the most ethical choice, that probably doesn't fail too often. One last question before we start to wrap things up. You said in the zero sum game of business. So do you think business is zero sum? No, I just mean that um, in the short term, there are often trade-offs between success and values. We've always sort of optimized for the long term and probably been willing to take some trade-offs in the short term. Uh, Every business has to figure out what's the most important thing for them. But we we have, from the very beginning, been focused on building a really great company over like 10 to 20 years, not this quarter. And it's probably led us to you know, pass on certain ideas and certain business and certain profit streams just because that, that sort of like long-term value creation is definitely really the focus. I, I, would, I would say I think business of anything is actually massively additive and not zero-sum at all. But I think also leaders of companies can fool themselves into believing that, that they have only certain cho- choices in the short term that, that are inevitable if they want their company to succeed. And I don't think it's ever really that simple. It's never that simple. Before you tell people where to find you, What's one thing you'd want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, it can be anything. For people in the audience who are going to start a company or try to do something innovative at a big company or just try to do something that people have never done before, this is actually something that I thought of, uh, which is not that novel of a thought, but I think it's really important to remember. When it gets really hard to do the thing you're doing, of course, because uh, if it wasn't hard, somebody else would have already done it, right? And the fact that uh, other people gave up at that point in the road that's so hard... That's exactly why you have an opportunity. And so one of our board members says, I don't want things to be easy for you guys because if they're actually easy for you, then you're probably missing something. I'm only really interested in you spending your time on hard things because those are probably the only things that actually have value in being solved. It's the dip. Where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter at uh, Biederman Rob. That's uh, probably the best path. Uh, and then they can head over to gocatalent.com. The, the call to action is built in. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where we have all of our stuff. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Rob. Thanks for talking, talking shop. My pleasure. Great to be on. Yeah. And hope you guys enjoyed this. If you did, check out Rob and Catalent. Check out the Disruptors. Leave a podcast review. Share it around with a friend and go get to work. It's time to do something. So cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.